0: Hello and welcome back to the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum living and working in South East London. So welcome back. I hope you're all well. You might be able to hear from my voice. I've been a little bit under the weather. I've had a summer cough and cold so editing this episode was not the easiest seeing as I had to cut out a lot of my coughing fits. <laughs> Apologies if there's any... Um, lingering uh, voice issues in there but it was a very special very interesting episode and a sensitive subject that I felt a little bit nervous about before we started recording. I get nervous whenever anything moralistic comes up. Now that's not to say I'm someone who is afraid of having or sharing my strong opinions of criticising other people's ideas and thoughts dissecting them disagreeing with people I'm very up for that but what I really hope that comes across whenever we talk about well rights and wrongs or different parenting styles or different choices that families make is that I really genuinely am never ever ever judging an individual parent or family for making a choice that feels right for them based on the information they've been given And I really hope that comes across today because who am I to say anything would be right or wrong? I'm just, I'm just another parent at the end of the day figuring all this stuff out and I'm hoping to open up interesting, thoughtful, difficult conversations around these things. So I knew that my guest today was the perfect person for that because Caitlin Klimmer is someone who runs a beautiful Instagram account and she very much explores the grey areas and nuances of parenting and sleep in a way that I think is, yeah, very thought- thoughtful and non judgmental. And she had been talking on her stories on Instagram about um, you know is can we say can anyone ever say sleep training is always wrong or sleep training is always right you know what what is what is that debate actually about is that even the debate we should be having and then she and I were talking over DM and I just thought this would be such an interesting conversation to have because we do live in this very black and white world of right and wrong and Social media really feeds into that those sort of polarized opinions. We see it all over the world with all kinds of subjects of extreme ideas being the ones that are often amplified the most and heard and therefore it gets really hard to have those conversations of well what what about the gray areas, what about the bits in between? And inevitably this is something that has come up on previous episodes of this podcast because we can't ignore the fact that sleep training um, is a choice that many, many families feel happy with and are, are in support of. And, you know, we're certainly not here to to demonize anyone and equally I think there are people on the other side of that camp or that argument that would say that all sleep training is cruel and evil and child abuse and I don't agree with them myself either you know I think there can be extreme ideas on both sides and I thought it would be an interesting conversation to have two people who very much support the people who don't want to sleep train, who are in the world of offering alternatives to those things, talking about the grey areas and what our own viewpoints are. Like how have we evolved over the last through few years through talking to listeners of this podcast, through people on social media, and being in the world where we talk about and think about infant sleep 24-7, how, you know, how have we evolved and how, where are we at now? So let's just get cracking. <laughs> but yeah, please remember that I'm someone, and I talk about this in the episode, who has attempted sleep training. I'm someone who has done bed sharing. I'm someone who has encouraged their child to sleep independently. I, I've, I'm i not someone who feels there is a very clear roadmap how everyone else should be approaching their child's sleep. I think ultimately it comes down to what works for your family, what feels right for your child and what is sustainable and I really, you know, I would hate for anyone to feel like they were being really judged by this episode but if you do or you really disagree with something we've said or really strongly agree with something, please, please join the conversation. Let us know. This is something I think we could continue Um, and I am really curious to hear what people think about mine and Caitlin Klimmer's opinions. So without much further ado, here we go. The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club, the online marketplace where you can buy, sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle. If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, The Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality second hand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com to sign up today. How are
1: you doing? Yeah, doing really good. Uh, brought my kids to kindy. Got a shower in, which is why I've got this wet shower hair going on. But it was so nice to shower in peace by myself yeah. and drink a cup of coffee. And yeah, yeah. here we are.
0: Oh, well, thank you so to much. Chat from... with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited, and um, yeah, it's actually been more, um, been I've been thinking about this all weekend. Actually, just about yeah how much there is to cover and how many things I want to hear <laughs> hear from you about. So I suppose for anyone um, who hasn't come across you before, Caitlin, do you want to just quickly introduce, us, introduce yourself and yeah?
1: Yeah, so I'm Caitlin. I am a mum of two little girls. They are almost six and almost two. And uh, before I had my first, I worked as an early childhood educator and then i had my daughter and um i got into the field of infant and toddler sleep and it's been really interesting because i am canadian i grew up in canada um you know spent my 20s in canada and then i ended up moving to austria with my husband who is from here and it's been a really interesting perspective as a canadian living in austria just to see how different parenting things are approached
0: especially as it relates to sleep i do find that really really interesting because um i I have to say i don't know a huge amount about austrian culture or parenting generally that's not something so i'm interested to find out more about that um but i i suppose and also i'm not i've never lived in north america or you know canada but i guess i i have a perception of of north american parenting being a quite kind of you know we have a lot of information about it in our culture and I I suppose is it very very different do you think between particularly around sleep yeah I mean um
1: there are definitely uh, some things that are quite different when I moved here I was surprised at how much more trusting Austrian parents seem to be um as it relates to like risky play but also around development like I don't feel like parents here focus too much or 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 spend a lot of time worrying about their children reaching certain milestones or being able to do X, y, Z. There's just this sort of inherent trust in the natural development of the child, um, which sort of translates into a lot of respect for childhood in my opinion. I was actually just talking about this. Um, I, I, my daughter and I went out to eat with other families from her child care center um on the last day of of their their childcare and we did the celebratory lunch at a restaurant and all of the five and six year olds were running around in the restaurant and they were like standing up on the bench and and I turned to my friend and I was said I said like this would never go down where I'm from like there would just be like this expectation that the children sit in their chairs and kind of get through the meal quietly and respectfully and I I can respect that you know want of parents for their children to learn like table culture and you know how to behave in a restaurant but there is also this sort of acceptance that these are young children our food was taking a really long time um, and children need to move their bodies they are loud they you know are energetic and I don't see very many 30 or 40 year olds who are having you know a hard time sitting still at a restaurant like I don't see any adults kind of running around in a restaurant we get it at some point you know and I and I feel like that really Summarized um, the Austrian impo- approach to to how they view children really well. Like it's just sort of like yeah, children move, and and no one in the restaurant was bothered. It wasn't like we were this super annoying group of people in the restaurant. The the, the waiters sort of accepted it. The other table sort of accepted it. And this is, wasn't an isolated in um, incident. Like I I constantly am taken aback by the way in which children are allowed to take up space here in Austria, and I really like that. Um, and then in terms of sleep specifically. It doesn't feel like sleep training is a thing. And I, none of my friends have sleep trained. Um, and so I kind of was like, well, maybe I'm just surrounded by like minded people. And I'm just like not being exposed to people with different sorts of ideas. But even in like mommy and me groups that I've joined with my baby, where I didn't know the other parents, or they were all strangers to me. Just in the discourse that was happening, you know, my child woke up this many times a night, or my child kicked me in the bed this many times a night, or um, my, my partner woke up with our little one to walk laps around the kitchen, I was just like, this doesn't sound very sleep training to me. And I don't make a habit of like asking outright strangers for
0: clarification
1: on whether or not they've sleep trained, but just based on like the way that they would talk about having nursed this many times or having, you know, their kids in bed, even though they're still two or three years old, it just seems like there is this different, um, this different approach. And I can remember when I started this business, um, and and started talking about these things on social media, people here in Austria were just kind of like, Why do you why do you keep talking about these things like sleep and bed sharing? Like, where else would the baby be sleeping if not in the parents' room? Or like, what do you mean, you know, responding to a baby's cry? What else would you do? Like there was a little bit of like confusion around it. And so that sort of led me to believe like this really just isn't as much of a thing here and of course parents talk about sleep it's a difficult thing no matter where you are um but there isn't this sort of sleep training wake window schedules nap schedule you know bad habits don't rock don't nurse this sort of mentality just really isn't on people's radar here as much Um, sounds like a utopia (laughs) and I mean I think that a lot of people would say that's all well and good but Austria has a very general paternal leave policy and so that's why parents can just kind of respond to their children infinitely but in Canada where I'm from you know maternity leave is anywhere from 12 to 18 months and here in Austria it's usually between one and two years so they're not that dissimilar yet the, the whole approach to to sleep in the early years is is quite different in my opinion so I I don't think that the the leave accounts for it entirely I think that there are other factors at play and and I imagine that you know culturally just hearing the conversation that people are having around sleep can impact your experience as well because if you're always hearing about wake windows and schedules and bad habits and don't rock to sleep and these sorts of things then that is going to shape your experience um, compared to if you're just hearing from other parents that they're all waking up you know x amount of times every night to nurse they're all sleeping with their children in bed or sleeping separately from their partners, so that everyone can just get them get more sleep somehow right like that's that's gonna shape the experience as well I think.
0: And you um I'm guessing that you have Austrian in-laws as well so you also have an insight into um you know different generations expectations around sleep what's that like? Yeah that has also been really interesting and I and I keep saying
1: that you know at some point when I've got more time and and um, yeah, more flexibility. I'm gonna do some sort of uh, deep dive into this because my in-laws and so many of the um, in-laws of my friends and, and like the older generation, they all swear that all of their babies were sleeping through the night at like six weeks. And that like, they just were in their own room in their own crib and I'm like, what? And me and my friends are like, this is bullshit. Like, of course babies did not just sleep through the night at six weeks. Um, but what happened where was like this cultural shift that went from you know the older generation who had these babies magically sleeping through the night at, at six weeks in their own room um to where the culture is now where like literally everyone i know has their babies in their room for the first year at least um if not in their bed and and responding to them and nurturing um them, you know day and night is just the societal norm from my perspective i'm I'm so interested in like what switch happened what led to that and in the older generation doesn't necessarily allude to letting their babies cry but there had to i i don't know i'm just having a hard time figuring out how they just all seemed to get these babies yeah sleeping through the night so early um yeah so that's been that's been interesting to I don't
0: know if they've all just got some sort of amnesia and they don't actually remember. Um, I yeah. think it has to be amnesia. I really do. I do because I think that I think that's a universal thing. I, I have to say that my my own mum, who has appeared on this podcast, doesn't have. I'm very lucky. She's like still, I think, traumatized by four children that never slept, but okay. <laughs> and is quite honest about that. Um, but um, yeah, a lot of other people I know. I'd say like 99% of the other people of our generation are like what's the big deal yeah they were just sleeping through and you just yeah um I mean my mom does say that they
1: did do some cry it out she also can't remember like to what extent or at what age they started I think it just wasn't such a big focus back then um but yeah there was certainly sleep training involved whether they called it that or not I'm not sure but um but yeah, my husband's parents and like some of the parents of my friends, I've I've quizzed them and I'm, you know what what happened and how did it go down and they just like I don't know the baby's just slept. I'm like, mm. although there you know there was a lot more tummy sleeping at that age too, which is interesting. We now know that that's obviously not safe and not best practice, but I wonder if that didn't play a role in it
0: as well. I th- I wonder about that because I was I was having a conversation with my mother in law who was um, saying I don't understand. Uh, why all of these babies nowadays have reflux you know that just wasn't a thing when we were when we were you know I there were one or two babies who I knew who were really bad sleepers but they were really in the minority and she's like now you know she's got colleagues at work with children and she's got her own grandchildren and she's like everyone talks about this like you know tummy issues and I think part of it has to be sleeping on your back because which is obviously you know (laughs) a million times safer and you know We know what what tummy sleep led to, which was just this awful, awful situation with SIDS um, being so much more prevalent. But yeah, I think that must be it. And also, I suppose um, like formula was quite different in previous generations as well. A lot of it was thicker and heavier, and some of the formula in like say the seventies and eighties had a sort of like sedative opiate kind of effect on babies because it was less like we, it's, it's a lighter pro, um, formulation now like you know the, the milk itself yeah. is um, yeah they're trying to make it more similar to breast milk which yeah is exactly more quickly has more sugars in it yeah yeah, yeah. so the technology has improved so some yeah. of the particularly I think particularly in the 50s and 60s actually a lot of the formula that was available then wasn't as processed but as a result could really like knock babies out. And I think that's a little bit where those old uh, old fashioned ideas of like, we'll just give them formula and that will make them sleep through the night. I think a lot of previous generations who I think that did happen for previous generations. Certainly my 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 grandmother's generations, um that was certainly the case because it really was, yeah, quite so
1: interesting yeah. Yeah. and and obviously the um the rates of breastfeeding were lower then right so more families were
0: using formula than
1: than they are now um so interesting wow but
0: anyway but like, yeah but i'm glad it's really interesting though that that because i was expecting you to say that you're sort of like the um the kind of current austrian grandparents generation were also quite i guess crunchy you know <laughs> and like, you know oh don't worry about it but that's really interesting that then that it's maybe more our generation now in well certainly in your community that are more accepting and just everything's a bit more normal which is quite interesting. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah I mean I do think that in some ways the culture was was more to use the buzzword like gentle just by nature like they weren't as uh they didn't have such unrealistic expectations of kids but then yeah when it comes to sleep there is this like mismatch right because they're just well the babies were all asleep sleeping when we were young this wasn't really a thing and I'm like hmm. I that a little bit hard to believe but but yeah in general their nature tends to be very gentle and respectful towards children which which I really which I really appreciate
0: yeah well yeah it's it's fascinating I love the different um yeah, I guess like the anthropological and cultural stuff that goes obviously because, um, like for example, this weekend I was looking at some comments on a post I'd done, and there was a person there saying it was about toddler sleep and basically trying to normalize waking frequently. You know, it's just saying you know this idea that you just because you have a one or a two or a three year old they're instantly going to be sleeping, and and lots of people saying yes, thank you for saying this, which is you know an important message for lots of us and then someone saying I'm sorry but a two-year-old waking and nursing every two hours of the night is simply not normal and um, you know that is not age appropriate behavior I think was the phrase they used and I thought that was so interesting because it's so that is such an example of a cultural bias like that is just you know because if you went to another, any other part of the world where that is where bed sharing is normal and for lots of families nursing a quick nurse in between you know a couple of times a night the mother probably isn't even aware she's doing it half the time the toddler isn't really even stirring it's just it's actually a really good strategy and it gets everyone more rest and everyone's happy and then the, the toddler just stops when they're ready that's quite a normal scenario for so many but if you've been if you've been raised and are raising a child in a culture where that is considered hugely problematic and wrong then you know that's going to shape how you interact with other parents and um and also I'm 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 not against making a change either and that's obviously what we're going to be talking about today because for some people that is absolutely not a sustainable strategy and I have to say I don't think that would work for me like you know I, I either so I understand that but for, for her for that person to start telling people that they were doing it wrong and that they were yeah that it was inappropriate. and, um, yeah, that they had created that problem for themselves essentially. It made me really sad and made me really think about just how how much conditioning there is there, absolutely. I mean, I can imagine how if
1: your two or three year old is sleeping in their own bed in their own room, and every time that they stir, you have to physically stand up, walk down the hall, go to their room, settle them back to sleep, then, walk back to your bed, try to fall back asleep yourself. And if this is happening, you know, two or three or four times a night in your third year of parenting them, I can understand how that feels really unsustainable and like something is wrong or needs to be fixed. But it is a completely different experience when you are sharing a space with that child. And like you said, they stir, you either nurse them, you know, you pull them into your chest and you nurse them back to sleep. And none of you are any wiser that you even really woke up or you just sort of rub their back and, and shh, shh, I'm here, I'm here. And they fall back to sleep. That is such a completely different experience. And I think that this is so much of the nuance that um, gets lost on social media because two or three weeks can, even though it's the same number of wakes, can feel so different or play out so differently for two different families, right? Like I would also be exhausted with two or three or four or five or six weeks at night um, if I was getting up for each of those wakes. But because we bed share, my partner um, bed shares with our toddler, the nights where she does have more wakes, it doesn't feel that disruptive to us, right? We're able to resettle her really quickly. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that this is part of what makes talking about baby and toddler sleep so challenging. Um, it's impossible to capture everyone's experience. But yeah, also also like what even, um, even the mentality around it, right? Like the acceptance part plays into it a lot too. So, yeah.
0: I was wondering if you felt like sleep training culture was creeping in at all, or if you felt like it was changing
1: yeah, I mean, um, I, I even the city that I live close to is is quite a small city. Um, if I were to think about a big city like Vienna, for example, mm-hmm. or even Munich um, in Germany, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I I have spoken to some parents who live in these bigger cities over social media, and um, they. Yeah, they, a lot of them have older, older kids, like one or two year olds who are the, and they're now at this point of saying like, okay, bed sharing's not working for us anymore, mm-hmm. or like, we don't want to continue nursing through the night. And so they're at this place where like, we have accepted normal infant sleep, we've done the child led approach. And so I what I find is that parents of older children seem to be ready to make changes here in Austria, and, and like we, we live quite close to Germany, so Germany, so this part of Europe, um, yeah, in, in the infant stage, in the baby stage, it seems to be a general approach of like um, doing whatever you can to get the most sleep possible. And then maybe in the first or second or third year of the child's life, and then, then the changes start to come yeah. into play. But I, I don't know that I would call that sleep training, because I haven't really worked with any families who um, who are willing to um to do any unattended crime or unresponsive Mm. crime Mm. um yeah and then so that kind of brings up the whole murky area of like what is sleep training and what is not sleep training right
0: yeah but no
1: I uh, I have seen a couple like um uh German language sleep sleep accounts yeah but they are accounts that you and I would be aligned with Mm -hmm. so kind of giving parents information about infant sleep and and you know, um, wake windows or nursing and uh, through the night, and but not, yeah, it's really not sleep training. I think marketing. that's really
0: interesting, though, because I says one of what what I wanted to talk to you today about was that this idea of um, of binary thinking and the mm-hmm. divisiveness, I suppose, that we have, particularly um, in in the Western English speaking world, especially, and I and I only say that just because I can't speak to the rest of the Western world. Like that's my experience. I'm sure it is going on everywhere. And I know that there is a lot of more I know that, you know, in politics across Europe and other parts of the world, we are getting more divisive. And that is a whole other kind of conversation. But particularly with parenting, that it certainly in the UK, it just seems to be these two camps of like, yeah, you either are this evil, cruel sleep trainer who doesn't care about babies and you're a terrible, selfish parent and you're just Leaving these babies to scream and vomit, and that's just unthinkably evil. Or you're this incredibly, like, uh, you know, easygoing earth mother who's just like co sleeping for 18 years and breastfeeding all your children until they <laughs> go to university. And, you know, and you are just this, like, you know, uh, just this patient goddess. I suppose that's quite an extreme example, but I feel like there can be, I, I see a lot of divisive language, a lot of, um, yeah. And, I, you know, and I have strong opinions and I'm critical of, of certain practices of, of sleep training as well. But if I don't know if you feel like if it sounds like it, in your community, at least there is, yeah, there is more room for nuance. And if people want to make changes, they can. I mean, I think that social media very much
1: rewards sensationalism, right? And
0: as consumers, we
1: say that we want and need nuance in these social media spaces. But then our engagements tells a different story because we are more likely to to read or to watch or to comment on a post or a reel that either says something that we strongly agree with and identify or that we strongly disagree with. And then we'll type our comments of like why, all the reasons that we disagree with that sentiment. But from the creator's perspective, that's all engagement. And so that content is being rewarded. And so they're more likely to continue creating content that has these sort of really binary mindsets or thinking because they gain so much traction and um, I think in reality a lot of us wouldn't speak the way that we speak on the internet face to face with someone like at a playground you know if we met a parent at the park Um, and so yeah it, it becomes pretty Pretty tricky, I think, to tease apart the what people are saying online versus how they actually interact with each other in real life, but I have yet to meet a parent, regardless of whether I agree with them on all things parenting or not, who doesn't fiercely love their child um, and who doesn't want to do the absolute best for their little one and I have a couple of people really close to me who who live in Canada who have decided to sleep train. they obviously know what I do they you know follow me on social media um, I am, yeah, more than willing to support them not to sleep train, but they just don't want that approach. But when I see them in real life, like they are incredible parents, they are so attuned, they are so loving, they are so respectful, Um, we align in so many areas, and their children, for all intents and purposes, seem, you know, so sweet and loving and happy and, and, you know, I can't say that they have wildly traumatized this child because they've taken a different approach. Um, and yeah, I, I think that a lot of us are probably more similar in parenting than we are different. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm delusional. Maybe I live in a bubble. Um, sometimes I see things on social media that. I'm just like you know like for me hitting is is something that I am very black and white about like I cannot under any circumstances get down with the idea that hitting or spanking is some sort of necessary discipline I don't know yeah I feel like I'm rambling a little bit but but I I do this is one area that I have softened on um since I've become a parent but also since I've worked with so many different families and spoken with so many different families online um that sleep training is sometimes i i i I agree i think i agree with you in the fact that like a lot of people feel like they have to sleep train even if it's not what they would want to do or they they feel misled by sleep training practices but then there are other people who kind of go into sleep training knowing full well what the alternative is and deciding that they would still rather try the sleep training um, and they do it in a way that's not, not for, for some babies maybe not that bad like one thing that is really important to me is that we respect the temperament of the child and you have a highly sensitive child I have a highly sensitive child there is just no way that some of the sleep training practices would have ever worked for them or or that they would have they would have never stopped crying they would have never stopped signaling for us they would have become too distressed I would have become too distressed but if we can stand here and say like temperament is such a big piece of the puzzle then I think that we also have to acknowledge the other side of that which is that for some easygoing children right they, they have this easygoing temperament where it might really just be a few minutes of fussing and then the first check-in happens and they're easily soothed by just the presence of their caregiver and then a little bit more fussing and a few days of that and the whole thing is said and done it would have never gone down like that for my for my child and these are the families that I like to think that I advocate for right um but for a lot of children yeah it's it's not this sort of traumatic experience that the anti-sleep training camp paints it out to be in all circumstances
0: yeah that's really interesting though that you're saying that your yeah that your views have softened I guess I think is the word you use but I think it's important that all of us have evolving ideas right like that's that's part of being human you know that we can't all just be yeah so fixed and so firm in and, and, uh, because what an amazing insight you have through a big social media account like the, the amount of voices you get to hear the amount of like that's an incredible insight to have isn't it into parents really intimate inner lives and what happens in their beds at night <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I mean yeah of course my social media um account like the the families that I engage with most um, have similar mindsets. And so it's a very, you sort of end up in a vacuum, right? Like your own values and your own belief systems and practices are kind of being reverberated back to you. Um, But maybe it's a little bit geeky or I don't know, strange even, but like, I really like to read sleep training forums and like on, in Facebook groups or on Reddit or, or different places where I'm sort of reading about the experience of the other side and, and the parents who have sleep trained. And some things I find absolutely horrifying and upsetting, um, not because the parents are evil. They're usually, they come across as very upset in the way that they're typing something out. But, um, you know, these sleep training programs that they have purchased or are engaging with are, are, not forcing them but like leading them to do things that they really don't feel comfortable doing and, that, and that's where my heart breaks not only for the child but also for the parents um but then you also when i read these forms i also sort of get insight into parents who you know are maybe really struggling or who don't have the other sorts of support that some of us who have chosen not to sleep train have um that have enabled that decision or who are unable to bed share or just lots of different factors that go into this um or the parents of really easygoing children who for whom sleep training really isn't that big of a deal and i don't think that we can discount that part of the conversation
0: yeah it's fascinating isn't it yeah i like reading from the other side as well isn't this might be a good point to ask you then like what what do you define as sleep training um i for me
1: it's any sort of non-responsive approach to changing a child's behavior, Um, combined with um, sort of misalignment between what you're asking and what the child is able or ready to do. And not that we can't sort of nudge our children in the direction that we would like them to go, but like I just don't know if it's realistic to expect that all four-month-olds simply on the basis of being four months of age can go 12 hours without a feed and without even any parental support or proximity in the night. Um, can some babies do that? Maybe, maybe they can do it at four months but then some things happen in at eight months they're then struggling. Like I, I think it is so important to tune into the unique child in front of you um, and if you need to make changes that those changes are done with a focus first and foremost on how this experience is for your child. Um, and that's not to say that I'm against any upset or discomfort or even crying, but I never think that that should be um, done without the support of a caregiver and without that caregiver supporting the child in the way that feels right to them in that moment. So like a really popular sleep training technique, for example, is to, go in and support your child, but without picking them up, right? So like they're lying in the crib and you're just rubbing their back and patting their bum. This can, for a lot of babies, not all, but for a lot of babies, this can actually escalate their dysregulation because um, it sort of heightens the misattunement that is happening between the baby and the caregivers. But from the baby's perspective, you know, they've been able to retrieve the caregiver back to their side, but they're still not understanding that what they need is the reassurance and and the, input of being rocked and, and held and cuddled um, to calm down and so it's to me it's not enough just to say parental presence but also like a parent who feels empowered to respond to the baby in the way that feels right for them in that moment yeah
0: yeah because there are those babies and I had friends like that where they would cry in the night and they would just go in and pat their backs and they would stop crying and they'd go back to sleep and I was just yeah. always like what am I doing so wrong? Like do my hands like the wrong shape exactly. or something? You know, like is it is it my patting method? Is it my shushing? Should I be shushing differently? Because yeah, yeah my child just, oh my God, no way.
1: But this is what enrages me about the whole gentle sleep training um marketing mm. scheme, is that you know, these sleep trainers market it as being gentle and responsive, which I guess um, you know, in some ways it is responsive, like the parent is there. But this is only gonna feel gentle and responsive for certain babies. And for other babies, it's gonna make, yeah, it's gonna make them even more upset. And if you read these forums and, and these groups, one theme that comes up again and again is parents who have started with the gentle sleep training and decided to move to full extinction where they don't come back um, in these timed intervals. Because the coming back actually made their child even more upset and more dysregulated. And they had a harder time calming down. And so I I don't disagree with the fact that it might be gentle for some babies. But the part of the sleep training culture that frustrates me so much is that 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 disclaimer for some babies is always left out of the narrative. Um, And so they market themselves as gentle. And that is a lot of parents experience, but it's, not everyone's experience and it actually becomes um you know just as dysregulating for everyone involved baby and parents as any other you know extinction or not gentle method
0: I think in the UK in particular um all of them the big sleep training companies social media accounts or you know but the big the big business that do that I don't think any of them are up front now about sleep that they sleep trained. I think they all use language about gentle responsiveness love-led approaches um I think that's really yeah and and that bit that you've said about that that is what they're missing out that that this will not be gentle and responsive for all babies in fact that's probably the minority of babies for whom it will be a few minutes of fussing and whinging or whatever and I think it's really interesting because I feel like it may be in maybe in other cultures, they're at least a little bit more open about the fact that it is sleep training. Maybe where, maybe in say, particularly in the United States, where sleep training is a thing and verbalization is a thing and it's people know more like that, that what controlled crying is. Whereas I feel like in the UK, it's become more popular in the last maybe 10 to 15 years. And as a result, now that because I suppose people like the holistic responsive movement has become more mainstream as well everyone's trying to rebrand and hide that and be really, really sneaky. And I know there are people in in the U S and North America and other in Australia as well, that are are trying to hide it as well. But particularly in the UK, there is not one single well-known sleep trainer who is openly just, I am sleep training. They're all sort of trying to make it seem like, um, yeah, it's this um, really beautiful process that just is, you know, yeah. And that's misleading.
1: It's so misleading. And especially um, when they post videos where they go through that baby's bedtime routine. And so you've seen it play out in real life. You know, they go into the room and they, you know, cuddle their baby, sing a little bit, and then they put them down in their crib and the baby is fully awake and they turn the lights off and they leave the room. And you can see on camera, this baby sort of rolls over and goes to sleep. And it just looks so peaceful and harmonious but yeah. we don't actually know if that is the first time this baby has been put down in their crib awake or if it is the 200th time yeah and yeah. for the first 100 times it didn't look anything like that yeah. um, but it's so easy to sort of yeah shape um what part of your process you are showing the world and and what part you are leaving out um, yes yeah, And it makes it really, really hard for parents to, I think, trust anyone in this business if they were misled by a sleep trainer in the past who was promising to be responsive and gentle or love-led or whatever else. Um, and it just turned out to be
0: another verbalization method. And for me, that's one of the reasons why I do want to be outspoken. Why I do want to be, I kind of really want to, what's the phrase, like, nail my colors to the wall? Is that it? Or whatever, you know, I really want to, like, sometimes I might say something that is a bit divisive or, or controversial because I want people to know if you are looking for genuine alternatives to that non-responsive sleep training, this, I really am it. Like I'm really not going to, you're not going to buy my guide and then get to page like 30 and there's a whole section about um leaving the room and, you know, or just like denying eye contact, which does happen all the time. Like I, d- I want, I need people to know <laughs> that when I, you know, where I am and so I suppose that's a part of it as well isn't it you have to really (laughs) prove that you're not I think that we're
1: also not promising any sleep outcomes right like as soon as some of the sleep trainers promise to have babies napping for two hours in their own crib for every nap and you know twelve hours of uninterrupted sleep at night that's where for me that's a big red flag because um no one who isn't taking these non-responsive approaches could ever promise that outcome for any
0: age. Yeah 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 that's that's really dodgy territory I think when you're making promises about a human being's like behavior and sleep I don't know it'd be so weird if if you were doing that about like a 10 year old child or something like that like I guarantee you they're going to do x y and z it's we would Mm -hmm. we'd be like no that sounds like bullshit. That sounds (laughs) really fishy yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) absolutely um okay so so I suppose onto like I guess this leads us onto that world of of and I I feel like the this question itself is incredibly moralistic isn't it like is it justified because it's certainly not our just it's not up to us to decide whether it's justified for anyone you know and I, I don't think either of us believe that we get to um yeah <laughs> yeah moralistically deem someone worthy of sleep training or not or say whether it's right or wrong because I think it is a a gray area um, and, you know, because for some people, for example, going back to that, say that two-year-old who's nursing every two hours in the night, for some people, it would be a really awful idea to say to night wean. They would say that is unfair on the child and, um, you know, we should be completely led by the child and they will stop when they're ready. And that is their, that's their core belief system. But equally, there would be other people that would, I would say for myself, actually, I don't think I could... I, that wouldn't be sustainable for my life, for my lifestyle, um, for my own sleep needs. Um, or, you know, I, there are lots of people who would need to make the change. So, like, who gets to decide that? You know. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: I think that that is a really great area because why is night meaning an appropriate change, but um, yeah, some of these other changes aren't. Um, and nightly mean can come with a lot of tears and a lot of upset. And, and if you want to get brutally honest about it, there's also a little bit of misattunement there because the child is communicating that the way that they find the most comfort falling back asleep is through nursing. And the parent is holding that boundary. Um, and so, yeah, there is a little bit of a mismatch between what the child is expressing. They want or need and what the parent is offering them. Um, it's, it's a good argument. Um, but, uh, yeah, ultimately, as caregivers, I think that it is within our, you know, it's within our right um, to hold boundaries. And and that is a necessary part of all of relationships. And we're going to have to hold boundaries in our relationship with our children across their entire lifespan, especially in the early years. Um, the key difference for me is, like, the way in which we hold that boundary, right? And so is that boundary synonymous with isolation or punishment or frustration or is that boundary held firmly but warmly and with a lot of like nurturing validation and and responsiveness um for what the child is going through while they're coming up against that boundary
0: yeah I love talking about boundaries because I think there is this misconception that if you are interested in you know whatever you want to call gentle parenting or respectful parenting or whatever kind of label you want to put on a certain I suppose a certain mindset that that you are therefore like a permissive parent and that you are just you know um I I think that's you know that that difference between authoritarianism and authoritativeness and yeah knowing what is right for the looking at the whole picture I suppose and and thinking about okay this might not be my child's choice but maybe it's in whole family's best interest right now that we make that change
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) and i also think that you can go into a decision like that and then recalibrate Mm. halfway through you know actually actually um you know actually they're maybe not ready for this boundary yet or actually i can't continue holding this boundary the way that i want to tonight i'm gonna Mm. call it and try again tomorrow yes and that to me that doesn't just come up with Sleep. It also comes up in all areas of parenting for me, um and sort of knowing when to toe that line, and knowing when your child is so dysregulated, you need to table it for now, and you can revisit it the next time, or knowing when you're so dysregulated yeah. that you're not able to hold the boundary the way that you want to, um, and you'll sort of revisit this.
0: A hundred percent. That's it's something when I work better. with people on on night weaning. That's something that comes up over and over again. I'll always say, like at the end of our conversation you can stop at any time and people Mm. are always like oh really like I thought I had to just kind of go for it now and I'm like no you can stop halfway through you can stop a week into the process if it's not or a night into the process like you can you can come back to it in a week a year (laughs) whenever you know and it yeah it's this idea that it's got everything's I think these are old-fashioned ideas sometimes of like, right, if I'm going to lay down the law, I've got to be really firm. I've got to be like, that's it. I've got to be that authoritarian kind of figure. Um, And it's difficult if we've been raised that way, you know, Mm -hmm. we might have had super permissive parents or we might have had really, really hardline parents. So finding the middle ground for ourselves can be hard if we've never had that modelled. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I just think it speaks to this like
1: black and white parenting, right? Like as soon as we say, if you hold a boundary, you always have to hold the boundary. Or if like, this is you, how you want bedtime to go, don't ever do it a different way. Mm-hmm. But then the nuance of relationship is so missed in that um, sort of approach, because even in my adult relationships, there's nothing that's black and white. Yeah. Like we are constantly sort of navigating what works in this moment, what works in these circumstances, what works based on everyone's mood or how everyone's doing or what what else is going on in, in this person's life. Um, and I think that we need to extend that consideration to our young children as well, who are able to hold that nuance. They can, um, yeah, they're smarter than we think. We I think that we can give them the credit of being able to, to work with that nuance. Um, yeah, we sort of think that we're going to confuse them if we're not consistent. But I, I, I don't buy that. I don't play into that um, belief system because I, I think the opportunity for attunement is missing when we hold on more rigidly to consistency than we do to responsiveness for what's going on in this moment.
0: That's so well put because I think it is. It's I think it's a hangover of behaviorism. This idea, you know, mm. that um, and actually, yeah, what everything you said about attunement and the relationship. We know that that is more important than yeah, just co- co- constantly conditioning our children to behave in these certain ways because that completely ignores the relationship at the heart of 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 everything. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, and I I love like I love when I get real world examples of of how able our children are uh, at doing this or of doing this. Um, for example, my kids jump on our couch. It doesn't we don't care? It Doesn't matter to us. Uh, it's old. It's stained. Probably half broken. So it's okay for us that our kids are jumping on the couch. And my youngest, she's twenty months. Like she's pretty little. Um, but our really good friends, who we spend a lot of time with them, there's no jumping on their couches in their home. And my kids have they get they get it at our house. We can jump on the couch. At their house, we absolutely cannot. And they just get that nuance. Um, and I see and or another, a more specific sleep example. Um, my 20 month old started to do one nap a week at her childcare. Um, and I, I just sort of said to her teachers, sort "I of was like best of luck to you. Like, yes. I don't know how you guys are going <laughs> to, how you guys are going to tackle it. Um, but I assume you've got some, some magic tricks up your sleeve and um, you know, if it doesn't work, call me. I live like five minutes from my daughter's childcare center. So I was like, I can be here very quickly to pick her up and she can nap at home with me and uh they called me and they're like yeah she's asleep and we'll call you when she wakes up she's up for an hour oh in a God. room with I don't know like seven other toddlers um and they asked how they did it and they said that they just picked her up and she put her head on their shoulder and they just swayed back and forth for five minutes and once she was asleep they laid her down in her little bed um that time does not go down that way in our home <laughs> um it is not that easy and this to me is just another example of how our children are able to understand the complexity of different yeah. relationships different circumstances different situations um and it doesn't have to be so so black and white
0: yeah the child example I think is so good because I even though I know that I knew exactly what you were going to say but I still, it still blows my mind when your child does that. Like when you're, you're just, the same as my son, he just would, they had these little floor beds. He would just walk over to a mat. He'd say like no night at 18 months. And they'd like maybe put a blanket on him or like stroke his back or something. And he just would fall asleep for two hours in a light noisy room. And yeah, I mean, he's four and bedtime still isn't that easy. <laughs> like that's, he still needs us to like slay with him and all of that stuff. Like he would never, ever do that. And he's been, Doing that in a childcare setting for like two and a half years—it's
1: insane. And I was talking to my girlfriend before this happened. I was just like, "Ugh, next week they're going to try a nap," and I just like, I'm expecting an absolute shit show. And she's like, "Kate, you always talk about on your social media how naps go down differently at childcare than they do at home." I'm like, "I know, I know that is true for everyone else," and I, I'm so sure it's not going to be true for my little one. Like she's so feisty and determined and
0: persistent it's just I'm going to be the exception to the rule and I was not and yeah one thing okay that I wanted to touch on was a big argument I suppose for sleep training though is the idea that it is important essential maybe even for the maternal mental health um and that I suppose if we're talking about like the wrongness or rightness of sleep training that's a big part of it right like you know is it fair to say to a parent who is really struggling, it's always wrong to compromise your attunement or be less responsive? It's, it's such a huge subject, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really complex.
1: I think the link between just mental health in general um, and sleep and, and adequate rest is well documented and and pretty conclusively um, supported. But if sleep were the answer to the whole idea of mental health, then all we would have to do is ensure that everyone was getting eight hours of sleep and everyone struggles with depression and anxiety and rage and you know isolation or overwhelm would disappear. And we obviously know that that is not the case. Um, so yes, adequate sleep is absolutely a piece of this very complex puzzle that is mental health and maternal mental health, but it is certainly not the only piece. Um, and I personally went through my own mental health struggles a few months ago, and we had already night weaned my youngest by that point, which meant that my husband could um, step up and take over any night wakings that were happening, and we did that. And so my husband actually slept with our toddler, and. It was around that time that my mental health took a nosedive, and it wasn't because I wasn't getting enough sleep. I was getting more sleep than I had for almost two years, um, but there were so many other things that were happening in our life that was really impacting my overall well-being. Um, and you know, it, it, for, for me personally, it was more about the num or the level of support that I was getting during the day, and the um, mental load and and that I had on my shoulders that I was navigating by myself, the amount of hours that my partner was working, that I was home alone with two little kids all day, every day. And yes, you can organize play dates and meet with friends, but you can't fill 10 hours a day with play dates. That's just unrealistic. Um, and, you know, so there was that isolation piece. There was, yeah, my own upbringing and, you know, working through working through that and, and you know, therapy and, and that sort of ongoing support. Um, my own nervous system and the sensory overload that I was experiencing. So was, is rest a part of it? Absolutely. But so are so many other pieces, nutrition, movement, which is harder to do when, when your life is sort of, um, maybe dominated by taking care of other people's well-being. Yours can quickly fall by the, fall by the wayside. And so, um, yeah, there's just so many different pieces of it. Um, I do have to say that like I, I there was a time with my youngest where she was going through these like really long bouts of crying no matter what we were doing like we were holding her we were rocking her we were bouncing her we were and um, she was older she was like 13 14 months and it wasn't reflux it was just we were yeah a, a challenging time and i remember having the feeling the thought like oh my god she if she's just crying anyway and nothing I'm doing is helping like I get why this drives people to sleep train because it doesn't feel like what I'm doing here is helping anyways um and yeah but in the end we obviously didn't go that route and and we got through that really rough patch um and I, I just think that I would never want to be alone if I was struggling. And so I sort of like to extend that thinking to my children that even if I can't necessarily make it better, I don't think that my presence and my support is making it worse. Yeah.
0: I think, thank you so much for sharing that, because I think that is a, a sadly not a super uncommon scenario either that, you know, and like you are saying, there is so many layers to mental health that to be, so um yeah reductive and just say well mothers need sleep and if they sleep they will be they will be happier and then the whole family you know happy mum, happy baby and all of that stuff and um for so many women in that situation who might be going through that with a young even younger I suppose baby um adding in sleep training can also exacerbate mental health problems as well absolutely you know
1: yeah absolutely um yeah I, yeah, I mean, I remember driving with my baby in the car and we were on a highway and we, I couldn't pull off and she was screaming. She was losing her mind. And I had such a visceral reaction to, like, I, it honestly felt like a form of torture for me to listen to her scream and be unable to reach her and, and get to her because I was on the highway and I, I couldn't stop the car. Um, and I was crying by the time I was able to pull over and my baby was crying and I, and I just thought like, I could not imagine, like, that was only, I don't know, five minutes or something. I could not imagine doing that for more minutes, multiple times in a row for multiple nights in a row. Like I, I was so, um, disturbed by that experience after just a few minutes that it would absolutely destroy me to think that I had to do that. Because of some sort of sleep training program I was following,
0: yeah, yeah. And I'm someone that did try the sleep training program when my son was, you know, he was under six months, and I I did do that. And I, I, I'm, I, I don't think I had PND or postnatal anxiety, or you know, there was no diagnosis. I don't know. It's all a bit of a blur, you know. But certainly, I was not like in my like, you know, best state of mind, shall we say. But you know, um I definitely a big part of it actually was this idea that I need to do this for myself because you know, this was a an act of self care for me because I couldn't possibly be a good mother if I wasn't rested. I couldn't possibly um cope without that sleep, and sleep is really important to me anyway, like I do really like sleep, and I'm quite a high sleep needs person. I think I think lots lots of us are um. And, yeah, and actually the, I suppose, like, the place that that took me to um, wasn't, it wasn't, it the, wasn't the even, okay, so it didn't work anyway, so I didn't really get, my, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't exactly like, it wasn't a fix that I hoped it would be anyway, and we kind of didn't really continue with it, because I then, like, had another layer where I was, like, carrying um, a sense of failure and a, and a sense of shame, I suppose, mm. or guilt over what, what it took, yeah. What I had to do, how much crying I had to listen to, how much, um, yeah, mm. yeah. And I mean, like
1: most, like you said, most people aren't starting sleep training in a great place, right? Like they are at a point where they are exhausted, depleted, um overwhelmed, and sleep training is no walk in the park. Like you're looking at, I don't know, it depends on the child, but like it could be five, seven, fourteen days of intense distress and less sleep than you're already getting and more crying than you're currently experiencing, um, which is just going to take you to an even lower place. But it's not like the sleep training experience shapes or changes your daytime Mm -hmm. experience. So you are now dealing with all of that distress, even less sleep than you started with. In addition to all of, you know, the, demands that are being placed on you during the day as well because sleep training doesn't automatically give you childcare support sleep training doesn't automatically take half your mental load away from you sleep training doesn't automatically get your partner um more involved during the day or or, or your older children um calmer that you also have to take care of so many things right it doesn't prepare your meals for you so that you're getting adequate nutrition it doesn't get you outside so that you're moving your body and, and you have to put in your mind so yeah it's it's frustrating when I see this sort of um marketed as the silver bullets to maternal mental health when we know that it is a bigger topic than than that
0: yeah and I think you know that person who goes into it knowing like with making an informed choice and deciding that actually I've looked at all the options and I've decided that I've picked ferber is going to be the approach we're going to do and and I know what I'm going into Mm. I think a big part of making that decision should be knowing that this might be a short-term um solution as well because I think that was certainly a big shock to a lot of like to me and like my kind of peers at the time when we were all kind of sharing sleep training information and different programs and some people I knew were hiring sleep trainers to come to the house and we were just all like let's do it let's do it let's get let's all get our sleep we'd all need to sleep like this is the only way and it was literally I remember on my son's first birthday and I was looking at all of the children like our children's sleep and realizing how many times people had to train over and over again and how we'd all taken some people had gone down the sort of like yeah bed sharing and just ride it out approach and other people had gone down the very hard line sort of full extinction approach and how actually none of it seemed to really have made that much difference because the sensitive kids were still sensitive the easygoing kids were still easygoing and so I definitely I feel like I wish someone had said to me at that time when my son was I don't know five months if you do this maybe you need to come up for air for a week or two maybe or a month or maybe that maybe this is fine you know you get to decide that but I really believed it was this like fix and that that was done and I think that's really unfair to tell parents yeah
1: absolutely that it's sort of this one and done and then all of their sleep woes forever and ever will be a thing of the past and that's just not how it plays out for most families and you know if it was a relatively easy process for you that might be okay to have to repeat that process but if it left you um quite upset dysregulated possibly even yeah um very triggered the idea of having to repeat this process multiple times throughout your child's life can be a deal breaker for some families and I, I mean, I think it's worth saying that this isn't just true of families who do or don't sleep train. Like we night weaned my daughter, like I said, around Christmas time, but we're still bed sharing with her. And she has really long patches where she is more or less sleeping through the night. And then she has patches where she is waking four or five, six times a night, right? Um, And I think that that is just the nature of infant and toddler sleep, whether you sleep train or not. Also my oldest who now is like, she is also more on the high sleep needs end of things. She goes to goes to bed between six and seven p m and wakes up between six and seven p m and she's getting a solid you know she is that that twelve hour twelve hour <laughs> yeah exactly. and she sleeps like a rock when she's asleep. Um, yeah but when we had our second, then she uh, not too long after started going through this phase of waking in the night and calling my husband to come and. Come and sleep with her because she just needed that little bit of extra parental support and reassurance this big life change was happening and yeah and so i think that these sort of ebbs and flows are are going to be a part of our reality regardless of what sleep path we take um and knowing that might impact which approach we feel is best for us because a the sleep training approach is actually quite a harrowing experience we need to ask ourselves whether we are willing to undergo that multiple times in the first few years
0: of each child's mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Um, and yeah, because ultimately, yeah, it's just, it's about tailoring your choices to your family's individual circumstances. And, you know, you understood at that point, point. and this is a difficult thing with babies, right? Because by the time your daughter's four, like, you know her, you understand her, I wish you could I wish you could have a, a crystal ball because I think lots of I think most parents have a point where they look back and their child is older and you suddenly go oh of course you were never going of course you slept that way look at who you are of course you were never going to be that yeah. that baby you always were going to be that's just you and yeah um but it's like um even like with um breastfeeding for example there is a lot of research um to say that breastfeeding is protective against um Um, postnatal depression but how you know you could never say to to, uh, a group of mothers well then you must breastfeed otherwise your mental health is going to you are definitely going to become depressed and suffer because there are lots and lots of women for whom stopping breastfeeding is a brilliant choice and the best thing for their mental health so why do we say this about sleep why are there people saying to you that you are going to crash your car and your marriage is going to end and you're going to, um, you know, be a horrible, horrible person to be around unless you are you are getting 12 hours unbroken sleep a night. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, for my husband and I, what was way better for our marriage was just anyone getting as much sleep as they possibly could. However, that looked right. Like it didn't really matter if we were sleeping in different beds or if, yeah, I was going to bed with my baby at 8 p.m. because that is the only way for that time that I could get the sleep hours that I needed. Um, yeah, the best thing for our marriage was was um just doing it in a way that worked for everyone.
0: Um yeah. It's this idea that yeah, there it's got to be a specific way. mm -hmm. And if you're not doing it that way. And you know, as as someone, I guess, you know, my I, I have a four year old, he sleeps, I'm pregnant now. And so my sleep is all over the place. And, you know, People are allowed people are like, "Oh, that's fine. that's normal. You're allowed to have bad sleep when you're pregnant. Yeah, but I'm not allowed to complain or have bad sleep when my baby's here because then it's like
1: you brought this what, on
0: yourself. What have you done? Yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> what are you thinking? Yeah. Oh my god, my my pregnancy
1: sleep was awful with my first. I was so happy when she was here because I was sleeping infinitely better with the night <laughs> with the night feedings than I was with um before, yeah, when I was pregnant with her, yeah
0: yeah yeah so but it's so funny how like the different attitudes prevail Mm -hmm. but um Mm -hmm. I think one thing I just wanted to get across in this conversation is that we're not neither of us are minimizing the effect of sleep deprivation and how hard it is on on our well-being and mental health and physical health when we are in these periods of really of tough nights or for whatever reason you aren't sleeping because it might actually be nothing to do with your child that's also really tough. And um you know, it's I don't ever want to minimize that. And um but just the idea that the only option therefore for your for your well being is to sleep chain is is not helpful for everyone. And I think, yeah, if you make a choice to make some changes for your family, whatever that looks like, just do it in an empowered way.
1: And also know that you're you're allowed to change your mind, right? Like you're allowed to, yeah. to decide to decide on a choice or make a choice. And halfway through that choice you realize, no, that's not the right one for me. Um, and I think it's so important to remember how much baby sleep is changing. And so the situation you find yourself in now is not going to be the situation that you find yourself in forever. Um and so even if your choice goes well, like like this kind of goes back to what we talk about about having to retrain, right? Like things are just always coming up and um we don't have to worry about
0: this forever, which I think can
1: can in, in and of itself be a point of
0: reassurance for some families it can yeah they got the goal the posts and the rules of the game are always changing mm-hmm. your child is always changing and yeah maybe something worked great at eight months that now at 20 months is just not an option and that's okay and that's normal and that's not a problem that you've created absolutely yeah, yeah.